0: Let me introduce Dr. Tom Coleman to you. It's been a few years since he was here at Bible Conference. I appreciate him for many reasons. Most of all, for his clear, effective, and faithful proclamation of the word of God, his unswerving commitment to the authority of the scriptures. He's pastored for more than 20 years in uh, one of the beautiful mountain valleys of central Pennsylvania, in Huntington, Pennsylvania. He pastors the Calvary Independent Baptist Church. He has the sweetest family, one of the most um, enjoyable congregations that I've ever had the privilege of being around. They love the scriptures, and they have a pastor that loves the scriptures. So it's no wonder because most people take on the characteristic, the dominant characteristics of their pastors. And uh, his wife Becky is here with him. He has uh, children, James and Ruth, the two uh, college-age children who are here at BJU. And he headed up the Bible Institute in Schaumburg, Illinois, at Bethel Baptist Church before taking the pastorate of the Calvary Baptist Church in Huntingdon. They have a wonderful Christian school there. He uh, thoroughly prepared himself in his training years at BJU, finishing with the doctorate in New Testament interpretation. We appreciate so much the opportunity of having him back, and as he opens the Word of God, I know the Lord will use it as God's voice to speak to us.
1: Dr. Bob, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity to join everyone here at the university at Bible Conference this year, 2010. I'll tell you I am excited about being here. I am just excited about the Bible, I'm excited about preaching the Bible, I'm excited about the potential that God's Word always has to work in the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls. So if you'll pardon me, I'm not going to tell you any stories right now, I just want you to turn with me to Psalm 63, would that be all right? Turn to Psalm 63, that'll be my text this morning. I'd like to read this psalm for you. Psalm 63. David, of course, is the writer of this psalm. He says this, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see Thy power and Thy glory, so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary... Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice." My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword, they shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped." I wonder if you'd join me. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the wonderful day You've given to us. Our spirits are cheered as we see the sunshine today. We are so grateful You've given us that blessing and warmer temperatures. May those things, even those things, work together for good, even in this hour, so that the Spirit of God may come powerfully to use Your Word in this place and in this time Pray, Lord, that you would just awaken us to the opportunity that's before us. Help us not just to be in a routine and in a rut. We have a a week of Bible conference. We have a number of services each day. Deliver us, Lord, from just coming to fulfill an obligation, from just being in a seat, from just opening a Bible. Help us to come here with a hunger and a thirst after righteousness and a desire to meet with God and hear from God. I ask you, Father, to bless me this morning. I pray that you would give to me utterance and the fullness and presence of the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that you would give to me a fresh cleansing of sin and fresh oil. I confess to you today, Father, that I have nothing and am nothing apart from your presence and the power of God. We cannot listen and we cannot speak except the ministry of God's Spirit be among us. Thank you, Father, that in spite of all the human infirmity that exists in this room today, that which is true of the speaker, that which is true of every listener, thank you, Father, that the Word of God is not bound. Thank you that it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We are confident in asking for your blessing on this time, knowing that we have obeyed you in giving attention to the reading of your Word and now to the preaching of your Word. I ask humbly for your blessing And I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. A little over three weeks ago, I returned along with my wife and four young people from our church from a missions trip down to St. Vincent. And I had an experience on that trip that I have had before, to tell you the truth, but it was fresh, and so it, it served sort of as the impetus for what I want to tell you next. You know, you you get in a situation like that, at least I've found this is often true for, for me and the role that I sometimes have to play on a trip like that, and your morning time with God tends to get crowded, and the reason that that happens is because you have increased responsibilities of, of preaching and things during the day, and and you have a, a full schedule during the day, people schedule you for this, schedule for that, there's not often time just to get alone by yourself, and And do some of that prep work that you... So sometimes it crowds in on your morning time with God and you you, you almost feel forced to use some of that time to devote over to being ready for the day in the sense of obligations. I don't like to do that. I find it happens sometimes and not much I can do about it. But I'll tell you, when I got back from that missions trip, as I say, I've had this experience before, I was just looking and longing to the time when that first morning would come when I would be able to go to the place that I go to and open my Bible, and not have some obligation from the day that was intruding in on that time, that I could just go there and, and be with God. And while I was thinking about that, something happened, and I was praying, and something happened. as often happened as I start off with praying. Many times the Lord will bring a verse to mind. It's always good, I think, to claim and pray a verse. This is Psalm 63. Over the years... This has been one of my favorites. There's several that I use, but this has been a favorite of mine. O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee, my flesh longeth for Thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see Thy power and Thy glory, so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. Because Thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise Thee. And as I was just thinking about what that psalm represented, it really wasn't even going to be my Bible reading for the morning. But I was just thinking about that in my my opening prayer. I remembered the title of a book, a small book that A.W. Tozer wrote. I I don't know how many of you would be familiar with A.W. Tozer. But in the last century, meaning the 20th century, of course, he was a great stalwart in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. They called him Prophetic. And I think he probably was. We, we have a large Christian Missionary Alliance presence in our area, so I like to read Tozer from time to time and quote Tozer because he was right on with what's happening in evangelical and fundamental Christianity, what was happening then and what's happening now. But that little title of that book is called The Pursuit of God. And I thought about that title, and I thought, you know, that is exactly what is being described in this psalm. I certainly don't mean to imply this morning that there isn't a different way to treat the psalm. But as I was thinking about it, that occurred to me that the pursuit of God, that's exactly what's going on in this psalm. I want to borrow Tozer's title this morning for my message and call it The Pursuit of God. It's a journey. I'll tell you, the pursuit of God is a journey. Young people, I want to say something to you right at the outset this morning. The pursuit of God is not a one-time thing. The pursuit of God is not a Bible conference. The pursuit of God is not a morning devotion. The pursuit of God is not a church service. The pursuit of God is not a revival meeting. The pursuit of God is a life. It's an entire life. It's a journey. And I'll tell you something else. That journey, as all journeys, has a beginning point. This is not really part of the message. I just want to say this to you. I'll tell you, the psalmist alludes to what that beginning point is in those opening words. He says, oh God, thou art my God. You know what he's talking about there is a relationship. He comes to God, not as a stranger. He comes to God as God's child. He says, oh God, thou art my God. Now I bring this message to you this morning. It might not make much sense to some people here if you don't have a relationship with God. That's the beginning of it all. You cannot pursue God until you know God. And if there's someone here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, I want to encourage you to understand this. This is the beginning point. To know God. Jesus said that they may know. This is eternal life. He said that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And if you're not here today confident of the fact that there's been a time in your life when you've been born again and you've come to know the true and living God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You can't really be involved in the pursuit of God, not like it's described in this psalm. There's a beginning point to that journey. But let's pass from that, and I want to show you three things as this journey unfolds in the psalm this morning. I'd like to describe that journey in three different ways. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, I'd like for you to notice with me how the stage is set. What we're going to talk about here for a few moments is the circumstances of the psalm. What kind of circumstances were going on in the life of David when he had this fresh experience with God and this desire to seek God and pursue God was rekindled afresh and anew in his heart and life? Well, there's several clues to this. He says in verse number one, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And if you back up right to the superscription of the psalm, I think most of your Bibles will have this. If you look right below the word Psalm 63, you'll probably have words like this. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Well, that gives us a clue. Then you drop down to verse number 11. Look in verse 11. It says, but the king shall rejoice in God. With several clues. So what we're looking for, if we're interested in understanding the circumstances out of which this psalm arose and what was going on in David's heart and mind when he wrote this psalm, we've got several clues. We're looking for a time when he was in the wilderness. We're looking for a time though when he was king. That's unusual if you think about it because normally the king would be in Jerusalem and normally David was. There, there would be two things that we could offer this morning to answer the question of what was going on in his life. What fits the clues that we've been given? Well, when he's a young man, even in his teen years, God found him. God was looking for someone to replace Saul. God was looking for a man after his own heart. He found David. He sent his prophet Samuel to anoint him with oil. From that day forward, nothing was the same in his life. He had to run from Saul. Even when he did battle for Saul, even when he was involved in saving Saul's neck, he was on the lamb, he was on the run. You know that story. So in that sense of the description, that would be something that fulfills this. He was technically king, but he had to run from Saul, and he was certainly in the wilderness. Many of the passages we read in the Old Testament tell us about the places he went to get away from Saul. I think there's one, though, that fits it better. There's another time. You remember when his own son, Absalom, turned on him. And he fled from Jerusalem. Now, you go back sometime. We'll not take time for this this morning. You go back sometime and turn to Second Samuel chapter 15. And of course, if you have any knowledge of the geography of the Holy Land, then you understand this real well. But the words are there nonetheless. The superscription of the psalm says, "The wilderness of Judah." And in that Second Samuel 15, he leaves Jerusalem. He's fleeing to the east towards the Jordan River, towards the land of Moab. He's going to go through the wilderness of Judah, and that expression is used there. I've been in that place before, and I tell you, some places of it don't seem like they're fit for much more than goats. But he was certainly in those circumstances, and he was certainly king. Why, Why make a fuss of this? What's all this really leading to? When we're talking about the stage being set and understanding what the circumstances of this fresh burden to seek and pursue God, I'm going to drill it down to one word for you. It's adversity. This is a time of very difficult trial in the life of David. To be turned on by his own son, to feel that he had to flee from the city of Jerusalem. The king himself, what a time of adversity, what a time of struggle, what a time of difficulty. And I wish I didn't have to tell you this. But it's true. There's nothing like a little adversity to make us serious about God. I wish it weren't so. I wish it weren't so of me. I wish I could tell you, you know, every day I wake up, every week I serve the Lord, I just, I'm always right there. And I don't find it to be that way. I find it to be a constant challenge. I find that sometimes I have a cold heart. Sometimes I can become indifferent. Sometimes I can get a little bit away from God. I'll tell you something, God sends along a little adversity into your life, and the first thing you know, you get desperate and realize how much you really need God. I wish I didn't have to confess that to you, but I suspect if we're honest here this morning, from every person on the platform to the last row in this building, everybody understands who's attempted to walk with God how true this is, how easy it is to get a little careless, how easy it is to get a little indifferent. And boy, I'll tell you, God has a way of just getting your attention making you realize how dependent you are, how true it is what Jesus said. I am the vine, you are the branches, and without me ye can do nothing. I always try to come back, whenever I, I quote that to myself, I always try to come back and balance it with what Paul said. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I know I am nothing, I know I have nothing, but I do have Jesus and he's promised to be with me. But you know when... God sends adversity and difficulty into your life. All of a sudden, God becomes a renewed priority. So in the stage being set, I'd like to show you three things that are here. And the first of them is a priority. If you notice verse number one, he says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. Early will I seek thee. I understand that some versions will render this earnestly will I seek thee. I suppose either is possible linguistically. I have to tell you, I'm not picking on any translation but I just have to tell you I personally prefer the term early just as it's rendered here I think it comports so well with what we know to be true about David and what we sense in the context of the psalm after all here's something from church history as well did you know maybe not this psalm for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years has been known to the early church the ancient church as the morning psalm That tells me a little something. But I read down here in verse uh, 6, when I remember thee and meditate upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. And he refers to the fact that he's gone through this experience and then comes out on the other end. It's morning and he's seeking God. We have that. We also have what we know to be true about the life of David in general. I think of a verse like Psalm 57 verse 8, awake up my glory, awake psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. David wrote that psalm. And I wouldn't stand here this morning and tell you that early in the morning is the only time you can seek God. I'll just tell you, though, I believe it to be the premier time to seek God. I wouldn't run the risk of turning someone off by being dogmatic on a point that you really can't be dogmatic about, but I think I can go that far. Search the Scriptures. You know, there's something very, very interesting about... That verse, Lamentations 3 and verse 23, just from a very practical standpoint, that verse tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. And I'll tell you, I need them when they are the newest. I need them when they are the freshest. And I need them when they are the fullest. But when you seek God early... It certainly speaks about the fact that God has become a renewed priority in your life. Young people, whoever is under the sound of my voice today, I'm going to tell you this is one of the great problems that we have right now in evangelical and fundamental Christianity. We're not really serious about God, and God is not really a priority in our lives. We pursue our time with God. We pursue our devotions as kind of a, well, if I get to it. I saw a saying about prayer the other day that I was greatly attracted to. It asked about whether prayer is your spare tire or your steering wheel. Your personal worship with God shouldn't just be a spare tire. It shouldn't be something you're careless about and get to it if you happen to get to it. But that's a great problem that we have. See, we're living in a day and age where a lot of people take things that really aren't optional and they find ways to convince themselves that well, you know, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus is my Savior, and and I attend church, and I, I do a few things to serve the Lord, and some of these other things that they talk about, ah, those things are just optional. Well, they might be optional if you just want to stay in the lowlands. They might be optional if you just want to stay mediocre. They might be optional if you want to follow the Lord afar off, but if you have any heart for God, any desire for God, it isn't optional. It has to be a priority, and it's become a priority once again for David in his life. I point you to something else. also, when it becomes a priority to seek God, the pursuit of God, when it becomes a priority in your life, and you do that for a while, all of a sudden it breeds passion. Where do you see that? I see that very clearly in verse number one. He says, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And then he says, to see thy power and thy glory. I'm going to tell you right now, there are few things in life that are more compelling than thirst. And there are few things for a child of God more intriguing in life than to see God, than to have a fresh vision of God. I don't know if there'd be anybody here this morning that's really gotten into a jam in so far as thirst is concerned. You know, you can go a number of days without food. They say that anyway. I hope to never prove it. But it's extremely limited what you can go without water. What do they say? Three days, something like that, without water. You ever noticed if you find somebody, maybe not in quite that desperate a condition, but you find somebody in desperate condition for water, and you get to them and they're kind of gasping, they don't say, "Ah, Mountain Dew, Mountain Dew. They don't say, Coke, Coke. No, it's always water, water, water. When a man's lips become parched, his tongue becomes swollen, his throat becomes raw, You're really desperate. You're passionate for water because you know you need it to survive. And I tell you, what we need is a generation of Christians in the United States of America who understand how to be desperate about God and who believe that you need God on a daily basis to survive and to serve Him. Become a passion. I think of somebody else in the Bible that had a desire to see God. I I sort of suspect that when people walk with God for a while, this just... Kind of is part of it, but Moses. Think of Moses in the Old Testament, Exodus 33, verse 18. He said to God, they'd walked with God for a while when he said this, but he said to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. I used to wonder about that as a young Christian, you know, because the Bible says no man has seen God at any time. And I used to wonder, will we ever get to see God. And then you come over and you read what Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'm looking forward to that. I'm not saying that you can't have experiences with God in which you see Him in it, with the eye of faith, in which He reveals Himself in a fresh way. In fact, that's exactly what I'm talking about in this message today. But because of the blood... Because of how efficacious the blood is, because of the power of the blood to reach down and wash clean from every stain of sin. I'm looking forward to the day when somebody as wretched and low as Tom Coleman. I'll be able to look my Savior in the face. I'll be able to see him. I'll be able to worship in his presence. I wonder if your heart cries out for that. There's few things more compelling than thirst and few things more intriguing than to see God. Speaking of passion, I was thinking of a story that G. Campbell Morgan tells in his book Preaching. It concerns an English actor by the name of McCready and a preacher who came to him on one occasion. Now, the actor was quite successful. The preacher came to him and he has I have a question for you. And McCready said, well, I don't know that I can much help a preacher, but what's your question? He said, well, I'm confused about something. He said, night after night, he said, you have crowds attending your performances, big crowds. Follow your performances, attend your performances. And he said, you're rendering fiction. He said, I'm a preacher, I'm preaching God's essential and unchanging truth. And he said, I don't have crowds. He said, I I have a question. I I don't understand that. McCready thought about it for a moment, and he said, I may be able to help you. He said, I can tell you what your problem is. He said, I render my fiction as if it were truth. And he said, you render your truth as if it were fiction. That is a condemnation. That strikes right to the very heart and soul of any man who feels called of God to preach. I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel very strongly about this. It's a sin to bore people with the Bible. I make it my prayer. I'm going to go preach somewhere. If somebody's bored with the message that I give, dear God, I don't want it to be my fault. I don't want it to be because I don't have any heart for what I'm doing, because I didn't do my prep work, because I didn't do my praying before I went to the pulpit. If they're bored, I remember something I heard years and years ago right in this place. Dick Rupp was my pulpit speech teacher, and he said this. He said, if it excites you, it'll excite them. And I don't have much time for people to say, well, you know, I don't preach doctrine because it's boring. Well, probably the problem is you're boring. Maybe I don't know what people say about me, but I like doctrine, I like to preach doctrine, and I like to do my best to make it exciting to people because it excites me. It excites me what the Bible says. It excites me what Christ has done for me. It excites me about those things. Here's a quotation for you. This comes from a source you might think unlikely. But Jonathan Edwards in his The Religious Affection said this, As there is no true religion where there is nothing else but affection, so there is no true religion where there is no affection. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. Why say amen to that? Passion. Now, it'll ripen, see? It'll ripen all the way. This is the stage set. If it becomes a priority to you, it'll become a passion along the way. And if it becomes a passion along the way, it will become a pursuit. Where do you see that in the psalm? Look at verse 4. Thus will I bless thee while I live. Or we might say, Thus will I bless thee as long as I live. See, young people, here's the thing the crisis is going to pass. The thing that comes into your life that God uses, like this in the life of David, to rekindle that understanding and that need to press up close against God. Look what he says in verse 8 My soul followeth hard after thee. And the circumstances that God used, that adversity, that's going to pass, I hope. I don't want to live there forever. That'll be the real test, won't it? When that passes, what am I going to do? Will I still be pursuing God? Will I still be seeking God? Or will I just sort of drift off again because the heat is off? The pressure's off. This is the stage set. The stage is set. I want you to look with me at verses 5 through 8. The heart is satisfied. First the stage is set, then the heart is satisfied. This is the pursuit of God. It's a journey. See how it will unfold? As this journey unfolds, the stage is set for it. The heart is satisfied. you look at verse number 5, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Augustine said something that I think is profound. I have always, since I have known it, treasured this quotation from Augustine. He said it in his Confessions. Here's what he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We have tons and tons of people that want to be satisfied. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be satisfied. Trouble is, we're looking for that satisfaction in the wrong place. David finds it in God. The heart is satisfied. He says, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. I wonder if I could develop this for you quickly with three thoughts that I think you find in the text. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. You know, number one, God, God, he's the only one who can quench our thirst. Only God, only God can quench your thirst, only God. If you look back up in verse one, what did he say? My soul thirsteth. Then you come down to verse number five and he says, my soul shall be satisfied. I love the way Derek Kidner in his commentary on the Psalms brings out the real emphasis of this. See, you have the word satisfied that Hebrew verb that's translated satisfied. It's a great rendering. That's exactly what it means to satisfy or to fill or to satiate. But Kidner picks up on the fact that you have also here this reference, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And we don't think so much in these terms, but in a biblical context, those references as with marrow and fatness, that's just the the top of it all, see? That's just the the apex of the culinary experience. That's, That's the best of it. That's the best. That's the top. And so Kidner, comparing what he says in verse number one, my soul thirsteth for thee, Blends the meaning of this Hebrew verb with what he says afterwards and says, my soul is feasted. My soul is feasted. You know, only God can quench your thirst. A great problem that we have even in Christian circles is people don't seem to understand that. If they do understand it, they don't listen to it. They're running around here all over the place trying to find something that's going to satisfy other than God. Anything but God. Has it come to that? was thinking of a story in the Bible about a woman with a checkered past. So she went to Jacob's well, noontime, hoping, I think, maybe to avoid a lot of embarrassment and a lot of extra people. A little bit of a surprise, she saw a Jewish rabbi sitting on that well. She was even more surprised when he spoke to her. Give me to drink, he said. She thought, something's not right about this situation. He's a Jew. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, and he wants a drink of water for me. That doesn't add up. The Jewish rabbi said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Now she's really got her eyes open wide. She said, sir, that well's deep. It is, I've been there. She said, that well's deep. You don't have anything to draw with. How are you going to get this living water? Are you going to tell me you're greater than our father Jacob? Jesus said, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him. In him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Did you get that? In him springing up. So that whether you are here today and uncertain as to whether or not you've ever really been cleansed of your sin and you think about this woman that had had five husbands and The man she was living with at this particular time wasn't her husband. You know, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ can satisfy the need for forgiveness. And he can restore us to a relationship with God. Maybe you're here today and you are a child of God. And you understand the needs that you have. And Jesus can satisfy. I'm so glad I can stand here in this pulpit and tell you something this morning. Maybe you already know it. Maybe my job is just to remind you of it. But he satisfies He satisfies the longing soul. And if you're looking for it somewhere else, well, he not only is the only one who can quench our thirst, but he's the only one who brings true joy. If you look in our psalm, you look in verse 5, verse 7, verse 11, you're going to find three references there to joy. Look at verse 5 with me here for just a moment. It says, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. There's one reference. Verse 7, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. There's another reference to joy. Verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. The king shall rejoice in God. I used to hear people say joy is not the same thing as happiness. And I kind of thought, well, they're just preaching. I kind of thought, well, that just something sounds good to say. Then I decided I better think about that for a moment because it seemed like a lot of people were saying that that knew what they were talking about, and I realized it was true. It's even true etymologically because happiness, that derives from hap, happening, circumstances. Nothing wrong with that. You know, you can be very happy over good circumstances if you go to your mailbox later today and there's a big, fat check in there I'd expect you to be happy. But if you've been praying about it, you'd probably have some real joy that would transcend that happiness. And the circumstances will change. See, David's circumstances now are not the greatest, but it doesn't hinder him from having joy because that's a fruit of the Spirit. That's something that's produced in our hearts and lives. He's the only one who can give us joy. On top of that, he's the only one who can give us peace? The only one that quench our thirst, the only one to give us true joy, only one to give us peace. You say, where do you see peace in here? Well, I want you to just look with me at something real quick. I have to be brief. Verse 6 When I remember thee upon the bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. You ever wake up at night? Maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd. Probably am. But there's some old heads out there in the audience probably know just what I'm talking about. For a lot of you, I understand how it works. All you have to do is walk past your alarm clock and see your pillow when you're asleep. For me, it's different. All I have to do is walk past a coffee pot and I can't sleep. I haven't found it that way in life. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you something that I can talk about from my own experience. And i wake up a lot at night. I have a way of telling my wife about that sometimes the ghosts come out. And you have to understand what I mean by that. I don't mean to imply being superstitious. I'm not talking about Halloween. It's just a way of explaining something that is colloquially put, you can understand it. You wake up at night and the first thing in your mind starts to race, and the first thing you know this problem, this situation you've got to deal with. Sometimes it's not even a problem. Sometimes you just get involved in thinking about things, but sometimes it really is something heavy. Sometimes in pastoral ministry and sometimes in your own personal life, you've got a lot of heavy things. You've got people with life-threatening situations. You've got some whatever it is. All kinds of things come up. The ghosts come out. What are you going to do about that? Well, I'm looking at this, and I get down to verse 8. My soul followeth hard after thee. And then it says, Thy right hand upholdeth me. I'm so glad to tell you here today that if you press up hard against God, just like it says there in verse number 8, my soul followeth hard after thee, uses the word for cleave. Like for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, or what Ruth told Naomi when she said, just go back, find a husband. Ruth said no. It says, Ruth, clave. This word, same word, follow hard. You follow hard after God and press up close against God. It's a wonderful thing to know God's right handle upholds you. That's peace. You'll find God sufficient to meet your needs. I'll tell you a little story as quickly as I can. I read not too long ago about a woman that went to a pet store. She was interested in a parrot. Why, I don't know, but she was. So she came back the next day, said, parrot doesn't talk. Pet shop owner said, well, do you own a mirror? She said, no, I don't own a mirror. He said, well, that's what you need is a mirror, because she said, you put that mirror in the cage, the parrot will start looking at himself, and he'll get all excited, and he'll start talking. So she got the mirror. She came back the next day, a little bit of a dejected look on her face. She said, he still doesn't talk. Pet shop owner said, well, do you have a ladder? She said, a ladder? He said, yeah, you need a ladder. That's the whole problem. You need a ladder. See, because if you put a ladder in there, he'll climb up and down that ladder. And, he's, and then they get very excited about that, climbing up and down that ladder. And as he gets excited about that, he'll talk. So she bought, reluctantly, she bought the ladder. He came back the next day, about half mad. She said to the pet store owner, he still doesn't talk. I said, well, do you have a swing? She said, no, I don't have a swing. Said, well, that's what you need. That, that really is the answer. You need a swing because, see, then he'll relax. And when he relaxes, then he'll talk. So she came back the next day. Before the pet shop owner could say anything, she said the parrot died. Pet store owner said, ma'am, I am so sorry to hear about your parrot. But he said, could I ask you just this one question? He said, did he ever say anything? She said, yes. Right before he died, he said, don't they sell any food at that pet store? <laughs> yeah. You know, when I read that, I laughed, too. Until I kept reading. The person that told the story said there's a moral to that story. You know, you can be so taken with your appearance and spend all your time there. And you can be taken with your career up and down the ladder and spend all your time there. And you can be taken with amusements and spend all your time there. And they don't satisfy. They're not necessarily wrong, but they don't satisfy but Jesus does. Not a lot of time for this, but can I at least point you to the last thing in the journey. The stage is set. The heart is satisfied. Verse 9, 10, 11, the life is strengthened. There's a mood change that comes over this thing. Now All the circumstances haven't changed. I mean, he hasn't had it out yet with Absalom. That's going to happen. I mean, that's that's all got to be brought to its conclusion. But there's a mood change here. And if you read this psalm and you're you're taking this in, you'll be able to sense this. All of a sudden, the psalmist has regained his composure. He's regained his strength. He's regained his assurance. He's confident now, once again, that God is going to deal with his enemies. Those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king, see, you're not worried about this anymore. Absalom's not going to be king. I'm the king. And God has reinstated him and God has reassured him of his position and of his calling and he walks out of this session with God with renewed determination and with renewed strength to do the thing in spite of his failures and the knowledge of all that brought this trial to pass in his life. He walks away from this time with God renewed. Should that surprise us? I don't think so. That's what God promised for those who pursue God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Renewed, he says. Or you come over to the New Testament. I really like one that Paul uses he says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perisheth, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Isn't that what God promised? I'm going to tell you this very quickly. Some of the English faculty may enjoy this, but there's a woman, as a teacher, was writing an article. In this particular case, she wasn't writing it on academics as such. She was actually writing it on the subject of sleep deprivation, or they call it sleep debt. And that interests me. So I was reading this and What she was saying was, you know, sleep debt, it it gets to the point where it builds up, it builds up, it builds up, and then ultimately the body's just going to take over and shut you down for a time because you get that sleep debt built up so much. You have to have sleep. The body has to have a certain amount of sleep. And, of course, we've all heard stories of this happening, people behind the wheel of a car or whatever else. You know, it can sometimes result in calamity. Well, she told the story about, as a teacher, she had an EN-101, Class at 7.30 in the morning. I never heard tell such a thing. She said there was a kid in the back. Now can you just picture this in your mind? She said there was a kid in the back and she said she watched him as his head went back against the back wall and he went to sleep. And they were having an in-class essay and his hand was there and had the pen in it and she looked later, because she had to wake him up for his next class, and she looked later and there was just a bunch of weird marks on the paper. No words. And she woke him up for his next class. And I tell you, I really think we've got a bunch of people who are devotion-deprived. And you're walking around that far maybe from some kind of a, a spiritual failing in your life because you have no strength. You haven't met with God. God's going to get your attention about that because God wants you to pursue Him. I want to close this morning with a reference back to Tozer's book. I picked that book up and read it when I thought about this message and I thought about this psalm. Young people, I want to tell you what I want out of this message this morning, what I've asked God for. Other people could have preached a better sermon on this psalm. Other people have gone a lot farther than I have in the pursuit of God. Tozer, when he was writing the end of the preface in that little book, had something very interesting to say. Let me quote it for you. He said, Others before me have gone much farther into these holy mysteries than I have done. But if my fire is not large, it is yet real. And there may be those who can light their candle at its flame. I'd be so thrilled. I'd be so pleased. It's been my prayer. If somehow God would reach out through this simple message and touch the heart of many a student in this student body, that you might determine in your heart to start something today, a journey that won't end until you are with the Lord in glory, a lifelong pursuit of God so that it becomes a priority, it becomes a passion, and it grows into a pursuit for all of your life. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Tozer himself prayed a prayer. It's quite unusual to do something like this maybe, but I want to read his prayer. I read this and it so captured the burden of my own heart that I did the very same thing. And I'm going to give you this slow enough that if you hear this prayer and you say, you know, this speaks to my heart. This is what I need. This is where I am that in your heart and in your soul you can say amen to it. O God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee. That so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.